This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Aviva, Genworth Financial, The Hartford, Mass Mutual, MetLife, Liberty Life, American General, and Pacific Life and Annuity. Now, join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, the head of Ringler Associates New England Operations. And this special edition of Ringler Radio is coming to you direct from the annual meeting of the National Structured Settlement Trade Association, or NASTA, being held down here in beautiful Puerto Rico, or as they say here, La Isla Bonita. Uh, you know, as most of you know, our guests are all high-profile experts who discuss a wide range of issues that are important to trial attorneys, defense attorneys, and claim professionals in the settlement industry. And joining me today to help with the program is Eric Vaughn. Eric's Director of Government Affairs for NASTA. He's a veteran of Washington politics, having lived and worked there for the past 25 years, including a stint as Special Assistant to Vice President Walter Mondale. And uh, welcome, Eric. Larry, thanks very much. Well, you know, our special guest today is a very high-profile individual, and we're pleased to have a great Democrat and a great American, Congressman Charles Rangel from New York. Congressman Rangel is serving his 18th term as the representative from the 15th Congressional District, and I understand there are only three other congressmen who have a longer it's tenure. It's an unbelievable Eric. record. It's uh, an amazing achievement. It is. And, uh, you know, the 15th District uh, also is growing. It used to be, I think, just Harlem, and now it's Washington uh, Heights and uh, the Upper West Side, so it's, it's growing. Congressman Rangel is the ranking member, ranking Democratic member on the House Ways and Means Committee. And uh, if the tea leaves are right, Eric, I think uh, we may be calling him Mr. Chairman in the fall. Is I, I, in fact, many people are starting to refer to the congressman as Chairman Rangel, and so that's really kind of exciting. Well, that's exciting for all of us. You know, he's also the chairman of the board of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, dean of the New York State Congressional Delegation. And as many of you know, he's a true champion to many people on issues such as the fight against the destructive consequences of drugs, uh, creating jobs for underprivileged young people, providing funding for low-income housing, and he's been a long-standing friend of our veterans. And while his accomplishments are too many to really list here, he's also a founding member and the former chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus, chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee's Board of Directors, and oh, by the way, he served bravely in the Army in Korea and was awarded both the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star. That's not so bad, is there? But if you go through that entire list and you ask the congressman himself, what's he most proud of? He will tell you being a grandfather. <laughs> you got that right. Two <laughs> beautiful grandchildren. Isn't that wonderful? Out. Absolutely. You know, I, and I'm a grandfather myself, Congressman. It makes a difference. Uh, with, with four of them. Oh, yeah, it makes a big difference about the future for sure. But what you may not know about Congressman Rangel is he's been instrumental in helping people achieve financial security by strongly supporting the structured settlement industry uh, as they deal with the helping, trying to help injured parties. So with all that as introduction, welcome Congressman Rangel to Ringler Radio. We're pleased as punch to have you here today. I'm glad to be here, Larry. You know, I did not know that Eric had served as a special assistant, was it, to That's Walter Mondale. Yeah. Well, Walter Mondale probably was the first senator to visit me when I was elected. We worked together fighting drugs and on so many other issues. So it didn't take much persuasion when he decided to run for president. 
uh, for me to become a deputy campaign manager. So when people ask me, well, just exactly what did you do? What was your job? I said, my job was to make certain that Fritz Mondale didn't peak. And I know I did a hell of a job. I don't know what people like Eric was doing, but I did my job. Kept you did down. your job. You did your job. Well, did you give him that where's the beef line to you? Because that was a great one. And I didn't give him... I'm going to attack you and tell you and the other guy's going to attack you. I didn't give you him that. You were part of that. Either. I was not uh, a part of exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. Well, let's assume for the moment, Congressman, that uh, we are calling you Mr. Chairman of the Ways and Means Committee uh, after uh, November. Uh, what do you consider your, your top priorities as we move forward? And, and really, how do you push your agenda in an increasingly polarized Congress? Well, it's surprising. You must have heard my talk inside because that question was asked in a different way. And I said, in order for the Democrats or me to be successful, we got to shatter that, that polarization. And it's difficult because half of the Congress there has never known bipartisanship. Uh, they got there fighting not just the party, whether it's Democrat or Republican, but the individual. And so they personalize it to such an extent that each side has retaliated with the same type of uh, rude uh, behavior. Having said that, <coughs> Dan Rosenkowski was the former chairman. Mm -hmm. And even though members of the Ways and Means Committee have more self-esteem than they need and they, they're selected because they come from secure districts and and because it's such an important committee, he used to bring us away from Capitol Hill in conference rooms that were distant from the town, no spouses, and bring experts on both sides of any complex issues so that we just didn't sit up there listening to five minutes and asking a lot of questions and members coming in and out. We stayed with each other for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner. And I can tell you, there was no complex piece of legislation on trade, on taxes, on Social Security that we didn't know both sides of the issue or all sides of the issue after two or three days. And, you know, when you get to know somebody and respect them, even if you differ with them, you can't dislike them. Absolutely. And so... That would be the first thing. Of course, on the long list of things that the Congress has to do and the president could not do because of polarization has to be reform of Social Security. We have to take another look at the prescription drugs. Indeed, the whole deficit-ridden Medicare system, which is not talked about, and of course the whole country believes that we're overdue for tax simplification. Well, you know, you told a, a story uh, in, your, in your presentation today that I thought was fascinating when you mentioned you were standing in the, in the, in the, the well of the Congress and uh, Representative Clay Shaw came over to chat with you about family issues and uh, after it was over, uh, all your Democratic friends said, what was that all about? You know, like there was some sinister, <laughs> exactly. cynical you know, thing going on. That's very interesting. Well, we'd like to thank you, obviously, for your strong support of structured settlements, uh, but as important as it is to allow injured parties to seek justice, you know, in the courts. Uh, there's also a cry for balance from the business community, which is pushing hard for what's commonly called tort reform. And uh, that's become a contentious issue, and it's been a longstanding uh, problem. Uh, what are your thoughts about tort reform and uh, 
and how do we keep the protections for the injured uh, true? Well, no matter which side you go on tort reforms, there's going to be outstanding awards. And it would seem to me that if the Congress wants to protect those awards and be of assistance uh, to the recipient, that we would maintain the structured settlement. Indeed, we should encourage it, since we not in a position to mandate it, but it has worked. And uh, even though in the past there's been some that tried to abuse it by factoring it, uh, fortunately the industry came forward and it wasn't we in the Congress against you, it was all of us against those who abused the system. And so when you have a record like that, it doesn't make any difference how you change the tort law, it's how do you protect the award and the, and the person that's the recipient of it. Well, well, Congressman, you had mentioned, we had talked about this a couple of days ago, the, the whole notion that the Democrats are regarded generally as hostile to business, that they don't listen to business and they're angry at business. So the whole tort reform debate gets taken up in the idea that the Democrats have one view, the Republicans have another, and we can't seem to come together on something important like medical malpractice lit- litigation reform. The other hand, you know all these insurance company executives. You work with them closely. In fact, your reputation is as a Democrat who wants to work, does work very effectively with business leaders. Is that what is what it's going to take to get something like tort reform done, leadership like yours, working with the business community on this case? I, I think that, unfortunately, polarization is not restricted members of the House. I walk into the lines then every opportunity I get, the business roundtable, you know, I've had Republican endorsement more often than not, and I show up at the, at the Lincoln Day dinners, and I, I talk with the, uh, the, the chambers of commerce in trying to get them not to be locked into some party ideology just because their dad and their granddads was. This whole idea that Democrats are for workers and not for business, how can you have one without having the other? How, how are you going to have workers unless business is successful? Uh, I went to the Congress to close all of the loopholes uh, in the tax bills when I got a Ways and Means. And now the loopholes have become incentives, and I have one of the most positively economic development explosive communities in the country as a result of the empowerment zones which was a bill that I was able to work with Jack Kemp and even though it was vetoed by Bush we got Clinton to sign it and I can't believe to tell you how successful business is but back home it's how successful employment opportunities are and I'm trying to merge the businesses with the education to have them to train the people for Home Depot, to train them for the car malls that I got, to train them for the hotel industry, because our public schools are not that successful. And so when I walk into a band of Republicans, I ask them, where do you think I've gone wrong? You know, I mean, I got along with Nelson Rockefeller. What, what, what is it that you fear? And I, I really think to the degree that Democrats have to get out and beat up on big business and, and, and these people would say, here they come again, tax and spend. But if we found one issue, I guess, that we can bring people together on, uh, why is it that they're unable to convince poorer people in a community that can't put a lawyer on retainer 
to have them convinced that, that we don't need contingency fees. I don't know how you can subjectively put a cap on pain and suffering, but I do know there has to be a limit somewhere. You just can't say you got to bring down Time Warner because some guy stepped on your foot. Uh, there has to be a limit. But we talk at each other rather than with each other, and I suspect that we're going to have to shatter the party label because no matter what they call Democrats, we got a whole lot of names ready for them the closer you get to the election. But we're right here in, 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 in Puerto Rico today. They're facing an economic crisis. And for those outside of this beautiful island country, it may be that the economy is about to collapse. It's about two people. Exactly. <laughs> one's a governor, one's a former governor, and they're both locked in. So I would suggest that as this country unites in a war, that we ought to unite in terms of seeing how we can make this economy work for all people. You, you told me on the way here and from the airport a little story about Jim Corman and how you, know, you met Jim and your relationship <laughs> with Jim. And everyone that's ever met Jim Corman says the same thing. <laughs> it starts out with a smile. Tell us something about Jim from you. What, what, what do you remember most about Jim Corman? Structured settlements aside, maybe, but what a great man. He was, he was being challenged. He asked me to come out and uh, work in his campaign for a few days. I was glad to, to do it. I didn't see as a newer member what help I could be, but I was glad to do anything for Jim. And uh, when I went into the campaign headquarters, uh, he and his uh, beautiful wife, Nancy, was there. He said, I can't wait for you to, I couldn't wait for you to come here. I need your help. I need your help. I said, what is it? He said, they won't talk to me outside. I said, who won't talk? He says, my campaign manager. They won't let me know what the, uh, they're not on the level. You know the questions. you from New York. You've been involved in campaign. You go out and talk. I said, you're paying them and they won't talk. He says, they won't tell me anything. So I went outside. I said, I'm Charles Rangel. I'm from Harlem, and this is my buddy. How could he possibly tell me that you're not leveling with him and how to campaign? They said, can we talk to you? I said, yes. He said, listen, he stands to lose this election. This woman is doing every negative thing that she can. He, she is lying. She's out in front of plants saying that there was supposed to be a debate schedule and, and there is no debate. She's on television. She lies. And you got to go negative and he refuses to go. I said, negative? Yeah, we got to blast her. We got to really put a bomb under her. I said, well, why don't you tell him that? He says, not to talk to him about it. <laughs> I said, he says, I know he's lying to you. He says, but I don't have to do that to win. That proves to me just what a decent guy he was. It was his campaign to lose. He was supposed to win. He was a fantastic incumbent. But he was beaten back by such negative campaigning. This is when it was first starting, and this gal was a pro at it. And then, too, when President Carter con uh, uh, conceded the election long before the polls had closed in California, Democrats said, hell with it. If the, if the president's conceded, I'm not going to vote. And he lost that. Never once did he blame the president of the United States. He, he was, by any standard, Republican or Democrat, a, a decent guy. And uh, 
and the structured settlement people were lucky to have him as someone to educate the Congress as to the worth of the program. Well, absolutely. And uh, for those of you in our audience who aren't familiar with uh, Jim Corman, he became the uh, the first lobbyist for the National Structured Settlement Trade Association, and uh, was a real fighter for our for our issues. You know, Congressman, uh, let's just take a little bit of a I'll call it a controversial turn here. You you have strong strong feelings about the immigration issue. There's been a lot of protests uh, recently. Uh, why do you think there's such a, a, a real rumble going on now about immigration and, and what's happening on the border and, and with the illegal immigration and the aliens that are here? What, what's happening there? What, what's causing all this? And what do you see as the ultimate outcome? It's just a combination of different types of dynamite that's uh, in this. Uh, where do you start? Uh, uh, first, you start with having no security on the border and people knowing if they get across that border, they got a job, which means you can call it illegal for the person to cross the border, but uh, uh, you don't find it illegal for a person to give him a job. And that is why uh, throughout these United States, hardly any community it doesn't find itself with Mexican laborers. The hotel industry, the restaurant industry, the tourist industry, um, Throughout, and I think it was felt when they went on strike, the bakeries in New York, uh, you found out just how important it was. But no one ever mentioned arresting the person that gave an informal invitation for them to come and to get the job. Uh, Another issue is that you called them illegal. Well, they are illegal, and we come from a country of laws, not men. And there's some people that believe no matter what the consequences, if it's illegal, you're a felon and you should be arrested and deported and, uh, and no one else should be allowed in. So some people want to put up a big fence. They want to make felons out of 10 or 15 million people. We don't have the facilities to do it. Another issue is that we're talking about cheap labor. We're even talking about non-minimum wage labor. Right. We're talking about a system that we have allowed to grow in this country, and we never had attorney generals running out there saying this is illegal for you to do, and and we never asked people to inspect to see whether there's minimum wage. You put all of this together just before an election, and you can't find people looking for a compromise. The people who want a fence are looking for arrest and deportation. The people who want this free labor, uh, they're not necessarily looking for citizenship. They like it the way they got. The unions haven't had a good day since God knows when. And they're looking at these people as potential citizens joining the union and trying to improve their level of wages and getting health care so that America can bounce back. And then we got some Americans that are uh, a couple of generations away from uh, being immigrants themselves, and they don't want any more immigrants. <laughs> you know, the roughest guy on an illegal alien is a recently <laughs> immigrant that became a citizen. So it's complicated. And since the House has such an adamant uh, pro-felon, uh, pro-fence position, and the Senate is trying to mix all of these things in a compromise that even if the Senate is successful and the president's not helping much, 
he's not helping really at all. Mm-hmm. He's just saying, get it together, which is easy to do, but you gotta really get in there and hurt and help somebody to do it. Even if they do pass it, then you have to bring and reconciliate the House bill with the Senate bill this close to election. So a lot of people believe that the Latin community is deciding which party's gonna be most friendly to them in this election. And that is influencing no, the outcome. No question about it. That's, that's what really drives it. And, you know, it's a very interesting to, to the observer on the scene how difficult the job you have is because you're dealing with the issues of people trying to come in, this immigration issue. At the same time, we're outsourcing so much of our, of our activities overseas. It's, 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 it's almost a, a schism. I don't know how you solve it. Uh, and you have a tough job, and we, uh, we commend you for trying to do the right thing. Well, let's take a quick break. And we'll be back with some uh, final thoughts and some other, a couple of other issues that we'll talk about with Congressman Rangel. We'll be right back. Ring the radio at the NASTA meeting in Puerto Rico. Don't miss all of our shows here, including an exclusive interview with U.S. Congressman Charles Rangel. This is Ringler Radio, internet radio from Ringler Associates, placing more than $18 billion in structures over the past 30 years, and one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. Ringler Radio is produced by broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network. Did you know you can download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to the Legal Talk Network. It's free. Ringler Radio, internet radio from Ringler Associates, is proud to be broadcasting from the NASTA annual meeting in Puerto Rico. Listen to all of our shows. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. Our special guest today is Congressman Charles Rangel, Democrat from New York. And also joining me today is the NASTA Legislative Council, Eric Vaughn. Uh, Eric, why don't you uh, talk a little bit about the economy with the congressman? Well, talk about unpleasant subjects these days. The economy uh, looks like it's booming in every respect, except uh, that the middle class are losing their health care, their pensions, uh, in some cases their jobs. And there's a sense of real concern across the board of what's going on here. Meanwhile, the wealthy seem to be getting wealthier. The yacht sales are at all-time high. What's going on, Congressman? What do you sense is, is the real problem? Is there something Congress can do about that? I, I think the best Congress can do is educate the American people to believe whatever we do is their idea. Uh, if you keep talking about how exciting and explosive the economy is, uh, people have to realize I have not received one letter from any high-income person saying, for God's sake, wrangle if you don't give me another trillion-dollar tax cut, you know, don't count on my vote. The reason for it is twofold. One, uh, the administration believes that the higher you cut taxes, it's those who pay the most taxes, that the more they will be able to make positive investments and then increase the revenue. But also they believe, and this is where the cost comes in, that if you don't have the money there, if you starve the the uh, the, the, the tiger, if, you, if you're not there to fund Social Security, then you can convince the American people to change the system by privatizing. If you cannot provide health care for everybody, 
and you don't believe the federal government has an obligation to fund it, then you tell them have health savings accounts. And if you, if you are working and are employed, this makes some sense. If you need prescription drugs, rather than have Medicare and the government subsidize it, subsidize the private sector and have them to give you office in order to do it. And so in the final analysis that you find those in the middle class going into uh, the lower classes, but there's an expanding group on the top. It just seems to me that we've done a bad job and the Republicans have done a great job in talking about cutting government to be as small as it can be, that it's a local and state obligation to take care of social problems. But somehow, I hope that my party would be able to say, it's in our national security to have educated people. It's in, you know, well, I take Katrina. Katrina was a natural disaster, sure. right? Yeah. Can anyone challenge if those people have been educated and trained and had money that they would have been survivors there? And can anyone challenge the fact that even though it was Mother Nature who caused the disaster, what's the difference if it was a terrorist attack? Right. You tell someone, get out of town. Well, it sounds like it's simple. But if you're uneducated, you're broken, you're sick, how the hell are you going to get out of town? Got to make sure the buses are working. You know, yeah. And then when you take a look and you see the technology that's developed in India and in China, mm -hmm. and you take our population versus theirs, and their major import is education. If you see Asians here in the United States, they're going to school. If they come here uh, as tourists, they're going to school and they take it back. We have the lousiest record of an industrialized country because we say that's a local responsibility. I say it's in our national security effort to make certain we're educated. A lot of people don't know, Eric, that half of the kids that try to volunteer in the military, they don't make it because of either health, addiction, or lack of education. So uh, to me, uh, that, that's one of the biggest things that uh, we'll have to overcome, and that's how do you sell what we're selling? Small government, uh, low taxes, or moderation so that in some way we become one nation with one goal and more competitive among ourselves and therefore more competitive with foreign countries. You know, I, I, I was going to say, I'm getting ready to come down here. I talked to a number of members of Congress and uh, telling them that you were coming down to be our speaker. You've got this reputation for being sort of the country's congressman. And by that I mean, we greeted people here in Puerto Rico. They think you're their congressman. Yeah, exactly. I've been to the Dominican Republic. They know you're their congressman, and they're not even the United States. But you go around the whole country, Los Angeles, Texas, they say Charlie Rangel. Never Charles. Charlie Rangel. He's my congressman. Is it your message of hope and optimism? Is your you view know, of the country? What is it that creates that dynamic? I really think that what worked for me in my community basically is having the opportunity to compete. People get angry when they know they can't compete. Even if, even if they're uneducated, they want so badly to get in. And I come from a district that's only had two congressmen since 1944, Adam Clayton Powell and me. And what a beautiful that's district <laughs> it is. And, and it's a district that allows, that tells them, do the best you can, Charlie. This is what I would do if I was there. 
And some people will say, yeah, but what, what's happening on my block? Say, leave the guy alone. He's working on it. He's working on that. I had a guy stop me and say, let me thank you for all that you're doing for the people in Haiti. And I thought I heard a southern accent. I said, thank you so much. Uh, what's your, where are you from? He said, South Carolina. I, I said, could you, could you tell me the connection you have with Haiti? He says, we're all from Africa, my brother. I thought you understood that, you know. <laughs> and basically, if you've got to have any hope, what is the difference if one of the major problems that we have in this world is lack of health care, lack of education, lack of an opportunity to get self-esteem and to take care of your family? And if I come from a community that can come back as, as children and grandchildren of slaves, and, and be able to get the right to vote, to be able to get an education, and be able to soar, whether we're talking about in multinationals, whether we're talking about the Congress. And most people, really, who, who knew me, uh, they say that I am a great example of what success can mean. They would say, you know, if Charlie Rangel could make it from Lenox Avenue, anybody can make it. And, uh, and I've taken that in the best possible way. But... The parts of the world that have made the biggest contributions have been the part of the world that's been completely ignored. Mm -hmm. uh, I was able to uh, enact legislation under Roskinkowski that would provide sanctions against American firms doing business and supporting apartheid in South Africa. Hey, it didn't get a lot of publicity, but that was one of my greatest accomplishments. I'm the author of the African Growth and Opportunity Bill, the first bill that we had dealing with Africa. I authored the Caribbean Basin Initiative, which dealt with the whole Caribbean. And all I did was give tax breaks to Puerto Rico. They should love me. <laughs> no wonder they were throwing flowers out there. Well, you spoke of uh, soaring opportunities and Speaking of the word soaring, there's one final question that I wanted to ask you, and our producer happens to be a pilot, so she's very interested in this. Your bill honoring the Tuskegee Airmen recently passed, and that was quite an interesting one. Tell us about uh, the effort you had there and, and, and the success you've had. Actually, I guess it was as a result of a recently uh, produced movie, the Tuskegee Airmen, that so many people realized that in World War II, African-Americans could not fight and die for their country. Amazing. They were put into uh, stevedore port positions, cooking positions, and, and things that didn't allow them to get on the front line. And they protested, as they did in World War I, uh, walking up and down the street. I'm just as much an American. Give me the opportunity. And so it did break when a group of people wanted to fly, and it was unheard of. But finally, Roosevelt, I think it was his wife, really, uh, designated a, a, an African-American college called Tuskegee as a place where those who qualified uh, would be able to train. And they called them the Tuskegee Airmen. And just like in everything else in life, if you found a hard time in getting in, those people raise the standards uh, to make certain that they make it difficult for you. And, and that's to prove their point that you shouldn't have been there in the first place. And so really you got Tuskegee super airmen because they had to fly better, they had to soar higher, and as a result of that, 
Their job was to escort bombers from the United States to Europe. And the Tuskegee Airmen, with the hundreds of missions, never, never, never lost one bomber. And so it just proved that they were aces. The sad part of the story is the war's over. They now try to get become civilian airline pilots. And the racism that existed before their patriotic enlistments resumed. And so hardly anyone ever heard of them until this motion picture came out that was such a tremendous and moving success that, uh, and me knowing Percy Sutton, who was my best buddy, who was a Tuskegee Airman, Roscoe Brown, Lee Archer, uh, we said, what could we do? And so the whole idea of a gold medal came up. I was so amazed that not one member of the House of Representatives did not want actively to be a part of this. I just wished that it was something bigger than I had thought about. Mm -hmm. And it passed unanimously without one negative vote. And so we're now having them to come up with the medal that they would like to have. And it's an exciting thing to do. And that's where being the fourth senior member in the House really counts. That's called clout. We know what that's all about. Well, listen, I want to thank uh, you, Eric, for helping. Oh, I'd like to point out that uh, I'm so sorry to interrupt, Larry. Sure. But it didn't hurt when Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld said, notwithstanding, (laughs) 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 I'll support the bill. Yeah, there you go. Politics all the time. Well, I'd like to thank you again, Eric, for joining us uh, on the broadcast today and helping out. Larry, thank you very much. And, Congressman, we really look forward to you helping uh, the fight for justice as you continue on. Uh, and we appreciate your unwavering support for the structured settlement industry. And we want to thank you for appearing here today. And uh, to our audience, I want to remind you, you can hear all of these programs on ringlerassociates.com or legaltalknetwork.com. And uh, I, once again, from beautiful Puerto Rico, I'm Larry Cohen. Go out and have a great day. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates, experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Aviva, Genworth Financial, The Hartford, Mass Mutual, MedLife, Liberty Life, American General, and Pacific Life and Annuities.